0: Hello and welcome to Value-Driven Data Science, brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting. I'm your host, Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Kate Bauer to discuss the responsible sourcing of data for AI model building. Kate is a consumer data advocate for Australian Consumer Advocacy Group, Choice, following a previous career in academia where her focus was on qualitative health research. Kate, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Now, the saying goes that if you're not paying for the product, then you are the product. And people are becoming increasingly aware of the fact that every time they interact with the digital world, there's a good chance their data is going to be harvested for some alternative use. I don't think anyone likes the idea of being the product sold by a Silicon Valley tech giant. But when you're just one person, there's nothing really that you can do. Or maybe, as a data scientist, you think being able to access huge volumes of data online is a dream come true. But just because you can harvest large quantities of data from the internet doesn't necessarily mean that this is something that you should do. We're going to be considering data sourcing from both perspectives in this episode, but particularly from the perspective of the consumer, because that's what choice is all about. That's right. In Australia, Choice is a very respected organisation. I remember back when I was in primary school, my mum taking me to the library to access Choice magazine for use in my assignments back then. I'm not sure if the paper copy is still around, but it's definitely still in existence on the internet.
1: Yeah, that's right. So Choice has been around for more than 60 years. Uh, Many people came to know Choice through the publication of our magazine, which is still in circulation, but most of our members are now digital only. But we were created because consumers felt there was a need to have be able to kind of speak back against big business. So we've had the same mission since the beginning, since 1959, which is to fight for fair, safe and just markets for Australian consumers. And that's what we've been doing. So many people know us for our product testing. I'm sitting right now, in fact, in one of our labs, but we're known for our product testing. In our labs, we test fridges and washing machines and soundbars and laptops and just about any consumer product that you can can. can buy in the market. We test it here on it in our purpose-built labs. But we've also started considering the other types of products and services that consumers come into contact with in their everyday lives. And that's kind of where my job comes in.
0: And that's a good segue into my first question, which is, you have the coolest sounding job ever, consumer data advocate. What exactly does your role involve?
1: Well, I'm glad you like it because I actually came up with the job title myself and I think I might be the only one in the world. So I'm glad that it sounds exciting to other people and it is a pretty exciting job. So when my team was started and I say team, it's actually just the two of us working hard um, on this particular issue. But a couple of years ago, uh, Choices Board started thinking through where do we think the harms are going to be happening for consumers into the future? And how do we prepare ourselves now and prepare consumers now for how to grapple with those sorts of harms? And that's where the idea of investigating data misuse came out. So, like, interestingly for me, it's not simply digital spaces or it's not the internet or digital platforms, even though most of, you know, many of those things come into the space, but actually thinking through, like, data you know everyone likes to say it's the the new oil um, more frequently now I think we say it's the new it's the uranium it's the toxic <laughs> toxic asset in your organization but data has become you know almost like a secondary economy I think of it as like the byproduct of almost every product and service every business is dealing in data in the same way that they might be selling fridges but now even your fridge collects data on you you know your car collects data on you there's really very very few products or services in, in the market that don't involve some kind of data collection. And with those changes in the market, we've seen a whole range of different interactions that consumers have to navigate. Suddenly things like terms and conditions and privacy policies become really important for consumers. But we know that they're like incredibly hard to navigate. So really my team was set up to make impact in this space to think about what are the harms that are happening to consumers and how can we make the the market fair safe and just in the same way that we do for other products
0: one of the things i feel as a consumer when it comes to my own personal data i feel i basically have no rights whatsoever i have to use the internet every organisation including the government is basically trying to force you onto the internet these days but if you touch the internet I suspect that every click, every word you write is being recorded and stored in a database somewhere for future analysis. What rights do I as an individual consumer actually have when it comes to my own personal data?
1: Well, I think this is one of the kind of like critically important issues that we're looking at is this issue of, you know, access even to use these products or services. As I mentioned, it's not even just the internet anymore. It's literally every product you buy is, uh, you know, an internet of things or a smart product and wants to collect some kind of data on you. Mm. Many of like, for example, the new cars are coming with their own 4G or 5G installed and are sending data back to manufacturers without you even knowing. So they're not even using your your device to do that. They're, they're sending telemetrics back to manufacturers. So really it is everywhere. And it goes back to the fundamentals of being an informed consumer. Traditionally we've been able to, you know, vote with our feet. If we have good price transparency, if we can compare products, and this is what Choice has been good at is comparing products in the market, then we can choose which one we think is suitable for us. But I think where we've entered into, because data is being collected by every product and every service, we've lost that choice. And really, consumers currently have very few rights. There are some rights we can go into them a bit more in the Privacy Act, for example. But we're seeing, you know, basically at the moment that the Privacy Act has been under review. And that review has suggested 116 improvements to the Privacy Act to deal with the complexity um, of where data protection is, is at currently. And really, they wouldn't even need to stop there. There'd be that many more requirements that you could make to improve the situation for consumers so it's really really hard for consumers to actively choose differently whether that's online or whether that's in in physical space.
0: Is it better in other countries because I've heard that Europe has very strict laws when it comes to data access and data privacy.
1: Yeah so certainly this is not a problem that's unique to Australia so we have seen other jurisdictions move much earlier than Australia has you know various you know Uh, I guess, you know, political vagrancies of of the ebb and flow of of politics. Some things are priorities and, and some things are not. But certainly we've seen the European Union was one of the first to put in some very, very strong data protection laws with the general data protection the GDPR. And then also the California Privacy Act is another kind of groundbreaking standard for data protection and for privacy. But we're certainly, I think, not done yet again, Canada has just introduced an AI and Data Act. That's a kind of an interesting coupling of AI with data. And there's lots of reasons why you might want to couple those things um, together. And certainly Australia, in addition to the Privacy Act, is now starting to look at what AI regulation might look like as well. But certainly other jurisdictions are substantially more progressed, particularly when it comes to individual rights.
0: I would assume that this is something that we will end up with in Australia at some point in time. But What's your estimate as to when we could see something like that?
1: Well, I mean, it's how long is a piece of string at the (laughs) moment. So I think there is some complexity involved. As I said, there's 116 recommendations from the Privacy Act uh, review report. But we're also in a kind of a unique political situation here where we've had a, a change of government and they have a substantial backlog of reforms that they took to the election that they're intending to put in. The short answer is they're very, very busy. They have a lot of of election (laughs) promises that they committed to. If they want to get re-elected, they need to to get those things done. Uh, You know, we've got a referendum coming up. They've got a lot of things. You know, the Attorney General in particular has a number of things in the portfolio that are likely to come before privacy reform. We have seen quite a few indications from um, the Attorney General, uh, Dreyfus, that he's very motivated to act on privacy reform. He had a go at it last time he was in office when he was briefly Attorney General under the the Rudd-Gill years. And he is personally motivated to enact privacy reform. But I do think that there is a, a range of complexities, both the backlog politically, um, but also there's quite an, a number of, I get complexities to some of the reforms and quite a number of quite powerful lobby groups opposing key aspects that will make that political process a bit more complicated.
0: That's interesting because I would have thought that this would be something that everyone would be on board with. You don't have to name any groups, but what sort of people would be or what sort of groups would be opposed to privacy laws when it comes to consumer data?
1: So, I mean, I think this is really interesting. So one of the key reforms that CHOICE is interested in in the, in the Privacy Act, I'd say it's probably two things that it really boils down to that we're really keen to see get across the line because we think it will have a big impact. One of them is just what is the definition of personal information? So currently in the Act, it is information about a person whereas what the proposal is to have information that relates to a person. So that seems like a very small wording change, but actually what it means is that things like technical identifiers or device identifiers and and MAC addresses, for example, would be included in personal information, which means the Privacy Act would then apply to all of that. So I think if you follow that thread through, that many of the identifiers that, in particular, larger data analytics and ad tech businesses are using currently, they're able to do much of what they do and make a lot of money on the basis that they're using identifiers that are outside the Privacy Act.
0: Okay. So data relating to me, that'd be my name, address, date of birth, credit card number, et cetera. that's distinct from data that relates to whoever was using my computer which is probably me anyway
1: that's right i think if you work in the field of data science as your listeners do you know that there's lots of different ways to identify a customer that are not their name in fact the name is probably the least interesting thing about a customer there are many ways of identifying them you know it right down to even when you remove uh, cookies browser fingerprinting, other types of device identification, and practices like identity resolution where you're able to bring different data points together to identify that that's the same customer and then do things to them. So whether that's show them certain ads, whether that's, you know, push them through certain customer journeys. Um, so all of those things could be then included in the Privacy Act if we change this identification. So the reason why choice wants that to happen is because that's in line with consumers' expectations. So consumers don't really care how you identify them, whether it's through a device identifier, whether it's through some other kind of unique identification that you've put onto their browsing behaviour. What they care about is the effect on them. So what they care about is control over the ads they see, control over the prices they see, control over the experience that they have online and in the physical world. So that's what makes sense for consumers. So they really don't care whether it's their name or whether it's some other identification. But businesses whose business model is reliant on many of these things, not having to worry about that compliance aspect of the Privacy Act, are opposing many of these changes and particularly the ones that either relate to that definition change or relate to some of the the recommendations around targeted advertising and audience segmentation.
0: What I'm thinking when you're saying this is how often I don't know, just say you wanted to buy a new toaster. If you start Googling toasters, then for the next month you get advertisements for toasters popping up everywhere. Would that be the sort of thing that would be covered by this legislation?
1: Yeah, exactly right. So it's those things that we know that businesses currently are using things that are not your name, but the effect for you as a consumer is identical in that you still see ads for toasters popping up. So it's really about having a privacy act that's fit for purpose for the modern digital world that we live in, that recognises that there's more than one way to skin a cat, uh, so to speak, that there's many different ways that businesses can identify you. And what's important is returning the balance to consumers so that they can actively choose. So they retain some of that consumer choice that we've traditionally had in in the physical marketplace of being able to compare products fairly, knowing what's out there, having price transparency. And I think it goes back to the fact, too, that. Companies need to have good products and they need to have good services. And that should be the basis on which people are choosing your product or choosing your service, not how well you were able to use dark patterns to manipulate them into a customer journey that they didn't know they were getting into, for example. You know, really, it can be a good thing for businesses who want to do the right thing, but it certainly will present some compliance challenges for um, large ad tech business and data analytics businesses.
0: Yeah, I can imagine that. The other thing that came to mind when we're talking about this is the data that many of these organisations seem to be harvesting. It's not just, as you said before, the data from your fridge or from your interactions with the internet. I've seen signs in front of Kmart and Officeworks and things like that that are warning you that they're using facial recognition software to track your actual journey into the physical store or using your phone to work out where you are with regard to GPS or something.
1: Yeah, that's right. So we've done a number of investigations on this. One was the one that identified Bunnings and, and Kmart uh, and the good guys using facial recognition technology and which we made a complaint to the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner and that is still under investigation by them, expecting a determination fairly soon. But yeah, we also just did recently did some work on the other types of technologies being used in retail spaces, things like Bluetooth beacons, Wi-Fi tracking, you know, and then often when you speak to these retailers, they say, oh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's anonymous it's it's just using you know a device identify we 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 don't know your name But in actual fact, if you have signed up to a loyalty program with that business or you have the app already on your phone, it is very easy for them to match what the device identifier is on your loyalty program as what it is when you're getting pinged by the Bluetooth beacon. So in reality, it's very easy to match up these various different data sets. And in fact, there are whole businesses specializing in matching up these data sets for you if you're not able to do it. So the practice of data enrichment is something that is very opaque for consumers and it's not something that they're aware of. And the more of these technologies that we see happening covertly, so for example, you're unlikely to know if a Bluetooth beacon is operating unless you maybe have the, the app for that shopping centre on your phone. You might get a, you know, would you like to open the app? We've noticed you're nearby. But otherwise, it could just be sending out pings to your phone and sending data back to that beacon completely unbeknownst to you and same with facial recognition. Unless you happen to look at that sign on the way in or you're one of the probably minuscule number of people who happen to read a privacy policy before (laughs) you go into a store, I think nobody's doing that, you know, then you're not going to know about it. So actually there is an increasing number of covert ways that businesses are collecting data about people and again it's just eroding people's choice and their rights to be able to engage meaningfully in how much data is collected and what effect it might have on them.
0: Once these businesses have collected that data, obviously they'd be using it for marketing purposes, but are there any other things that they're using that data for?
1: So again, this is another area which is very opaque to consumers. We did an investigation into Tinder, who we found was using personalised pricing, which is not illegal to offer different prices for different people. But It appeared to us that there seemed to be some pricing based on people's protected characteristics, so their age, their gender, where they were from. So for example, when we did the research, a queer, a single woman living in an urban area paid the least, and an older heterosexual man who lived in the country paid the most. And the difference was up to seven times different. So this is for their premium service. The the basic version of Tinder is free for all users, but this is for their premium subscription service. So that's a really significant price difference, but completely unbeknownst to the users. The people who were seeing those different prices had no idea that they were seeing a different price than other people. And those are the sorts of issues that we're concerned about, A, that it could be based on discriminatory characteristics in that it's actually, it might not be illegal to show people different prices, but it is to price things based on people's gender or sexuality. And But the fact that it was completely opaque, opaque to people, they had no idea that this was happening. So I'm pleased to say that following that, we partnered with Consumers International and they replicated the study in seven countries and found the same thing. And Tinder committed to not pricing. Uh, well, what they said was age-based discounts, using age as a factor. They claimed that they weren't using sexuality, that it must have been some other indicator that had that effect. We just have to believe them. But they haven't committed of, of stepping back from personalised pricing or from showing people how and on what basis they're seeing that price. You know, So those kinds of practices, yes, Tinder is a a kind of a niche service in a way. Not everyone's going to necessarily be impacted. But when we are able to do those things, and it's hard for people to know that that's happening, what will it mean for our basic groceries or the basic services that we need in our everyday lives to start having personalised pricing? And that's why we need some stronger consumer protections and data protections before we start to see those sorts of harms occurring.
0: That's fascinating about the personalised pricing. I have a background in the insurance industry where, well, obviously you have rating factors with insurance, but you also have non-rating factor based price optimization. But it never occurred to me that you could apply that sort of thing to something like Tinder.
1: Yeah. So this is kind of what we say. I mean, that's pretty standard in insurance. I mean, it's kind of the principle of insurance in a way, isn't it? Like it is risk-based pricing. So I think we kind of accept that in insurance, but also insurance is quite heavily regulated. So, you know, there are very strict rules around this. Whereas when we're seeing it happen in other sorts of spaces, for example, dating apps and who knows where else, we just relying on tip-offs really to find out that kind of information. It's concerning. It's concerning really that there isn't actually strong regulation that, that regulates say dating apps or even any other type of apps and their subscription models and I think many of us now are signed up to multiple subscriptions. We could be paying very different prices than our neighbour and we wouldn't even know.
0: And there are certain things that you can accept like most Software companies have the individual pricing versus business pricing. Fair enough. I accept that. But yeah, the idea that one person gets charged something by Tinder versus another, that's that's crazy.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's pretty concerning when you when you see it like that. And, you know, as I said, dating apps is one area, but I think when you start to think if you're paying a different price for a loaf of bread. Than someone else based on something like where you live or your name or your, your, your gender or you know, whether you have two cats or three cats. You know, like that kind of idea of testing the kind of elasticity of what we, people are willing to pay is a real possibility as we move into this more digitized pricing space. Businesses certainly have the amount of data required to do that kind of price experimentation. And at the moment, we're really just relying on the fact that in good faith that that they're not doing that, that if people found out about it, it would be incredibly bad for their business. Mm -hmm. But there could be companies out there who think maybe it's worth the risk.
0: Well, location-based price differentiation has been happening for decades yeah, you know, you have Woolworths in one city charging one price versus Woolworths in another city or that's even right. just different suburbs in the same city.
1: Yeah. And a lot of this is to do with, again, this idea of consumer choice and consumer power. I think there's a reason why we named our organisation choice is that's really at the centre of consumers being engaged fairly in the market is being able to execute that choice. And when those things are, are not transparent, that's where you have a problem. So you could also, If there's a good reason, you know, like obviously it costs more to get the fresh food on a truck to send it out to Burke, say in New South Wales, and it does do it in Wollongong where it's coming right off the ship, you know. So obviously there are there are legitimate factors involved in pricing food and groceries. People can accept those, but also they're transparent about it, you know. So it's more that do I know that I'm being served a different price, and if it is a different price, can you explain to me on what basis? That, that 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 is happening. So if I'm seeing a personalized price, I'd like to know how did you, how did you get to this price? And which what about me is it why I'm seeing this price?
0: And then now that we've got all these AI tools coming out, that's adding an additional layer of complexity to this whole discussion. Recently we've had ChatGPT, Stable Diffusion, and GitHub Copilot coming out. All of which I believe are built based on data that was harvested from the internet. From what I've read, ChatGPT was trained using text data scraped from millions of public websites. Stable Diffusion, which is an AI image generator, was trained using images harvested, presumably in a similar way from the internet. And GitHub Copilot was trained using computer ha- code harvested from public GitHub repositories. Is there any way that you can protect the copyright on your data if you put it on a public website?
1: I mean, yeah, I think it's a great question. I think generative AI is making us grapple with some of these big questions that probably a lot of people in this working in the space have been thinking about for a long time. You know, when we're talking previously before about like what personal information is protected under the privacy act, then we talked a little bit about our what I call consumer data, so our behavioral data basically like you know, what the loyalty program card is collecting. But then there's also what's available publicly. So we've seen, for example, the Clearview AI case with the OAIC here investigated and said that that collection of people's faces from Facebook in order to build a facial recognition database was an illegal collection. So that was a very kind of clear determination that actually, no, this is people's sensitive information. People put their photos on Facebook for the purposes of being a profile photo or for, you know, share their kid's birthday party or whatever it was, and then to scrape it and then use it for a different purpose is a breach of the Privacy Act. When it comes to generative AI, though, we're talking not about people's faces or even people's personal details, even though I think we've all seen that there is personal information in these large language models and, in fact, secure information and all all sorts of things that probably shouldn't be in there. But even if we put that, that issue to one side for a moment, we haven't thought that well through what the kind of consequences, I guess, of having all of this information. So, you know, Internet was built with a kind of idealistic worldview of the free and open internet. We used to talk about the information superhighway. It was going to open the world. And look, it has, no doubt. You know, I think Wikipedia is just like one of the best things out there really. I also teach ethics to a group of primary school students as, as a volunteer job at my daughter's school and they still get told I oh, don't use Wikipedia and I'm like no, no no trust me go and put a mistake on Wikipedia and you see how quickly it gets corrected. Like go in and edit a page and you put something false on there and I get the students to do it, and they'll come back and they're like it took 20 minutes for someone to correct that source. Like it The power of the free and open internet I think is amazing, but what we have seen since really the advent of the larger digital platforms is an accumulation of market power that has changed the fundamental nature of the internet and also what we think of as people's intellectual property and their data. The reality is that these large language models can only be created by the largest of digital platforms, the largest companies. They're the only ones who have the compute power big enough. You either need to own that much cloud storage, I um, mean, in order mm. to be able to run yeah. and build them, or even to handle that volume of data is a very a large technical challenge. So I think we need to think through, like, what does it mean for maybe only fewer than 10 companies in the world? to have this power to be able to scrape up every single thing on the internet and then spit it back out to us as a commercial product.
0: And they have the power to influence public debate because if they choose to side on one side of a debate versus another, they can literally cancel the side that they don't like.
1: Exactly. So I think we're only just coming to terms with that kind of power. And I think it's important to think about these things in the context of that large accumulation of of tech power within a small number of companies, but also a huge amount of wealth accumulated. Like we're talking about individuals, you know, 20 or so individuals who are all from Silicon Valley, who are all, all men, all got similar educations, who are wealthier than, like one of them's wealthier than entire nation states, you know. So yes, the influence is huge. So I think all of this needs to be part of the conversation. I think any copyright lawyer will tell you that a large language model is breaching copyright.
0: Yes. And there are a couple of class actions happening at the moment in America about that.
1: So this is actually more about how prepared our legal system is and how prepared our regulatory frameworks are to deal with this. And that's why I think you can't talk about it without talking about the large accumulation of power and influence that these tech companies have had because they are able to act like nation states. They do have that level of power. They do have that level of wealth and they do have that level of influence. If Amazon wanted to shut down Amazon Web Services tomorrow, they'd kill 40% of the internet you know, like they could just flick the switch tomorrow and say, okay, you don't give us the regulation we want. We'll we'll literally turn flick the switch on 40% of the world's cloud storage. I mean, that would collapse stock markets. It would disrupt electricity networks. It would cripple the world. You know, I, I mean, I don't think they're going to do that. That would probably be a bit of a dumb move. But the fact that they can and governments are actually powerless to stop them is, is the real problem here. So I think generative AI, as there's been a, like a big hype cycle about it. But what I'm kind of glad about it is, is that it is bringing these issues out into the open. It's like, okay, so now these companies have everything that's on the internet. They're feeding it back to us as a product that we're supposed to buy, which we're also feeding the model again every
0: time we use it. What I'd be really interested to know is, so with these things like um, stable diffusion, the argument that the big tech companies make is if code or information or images are publicly available through a public website, then anyone has the right to harvest that data and use it however they want. but it doesn't make much sense to me because out there somewhere there is undoubtedly a Disney website that contains lots of pictures of Mickey Mouse, and that doesn't give me personally the right to harvest images of Mickey Mouse and put them on t-shirts to sell. I mean, Disney's lawyers would be knocking on my door before I could actually get one of those t-shirts at the front door. But I'd love to know if one of these big companies messed with another big company, like say a Disney or Marvel, DC, one of those, what would happen?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it it will be really interesting. And I think a lot of this will be played out with that on that big corporate scale because they're the people who are gonna have the resources to take those cases. You know, like I think the argument, like to be frank, it's BS. Like we all know it's BS. We all went to school. You couldn't get a book from the library, just cut and paste it however you wanted and put it into your school essay and have that be okay. We all understand plagiarism. We all understand copyright and intellectual property. I mean, this idea that just because it's publicly available, you can own it. It's it's just not true. But the narrative of innovation you know, that like you couldn't put any rules around this because, oh, it's it's innovative. We're going to, you know, you know, that is really what's allowing them to get away with it. And and the other thing is the fact that like OpenAI, for example, they haven't released any information about their model, which is the complete opposite of how they started out. Like they started out as an open source AI company. They were like, we know that the ethical way to do this is to to be open, like to tell people what our data sets were, to tell people how we came up with the models, to like share the code. You know, again, this whole idea of, you know, we're all in this together. Um, And then the second there was a profit motive involved, it became, actually, we're not gonna tell anybody, we don't have to tell you, no one's making us tell you, so we don't have to tell you what's in our data set. You know, so it'd be quite interesting if we ever do get to see what's in the data set that built ChatGPT or GPT-4, because we don't know. So we know, for example, Washington posted this really great story on the, Google's Lambda and the C4 data set, which I think is quite a few years old now, but it's one that is publicly available. And the top website that was in, is in C4's data set, which is the one that Google uses, was patents.google.com. So patents.google.com is a public repository of patents. So Google's like, we own this website because it says patents.google.com. But actually, that's all of the intellectual property, the blood, sweat and tears of every scientist and every data scientist, every bioethicist and, you know, every climate change scientist who've put all of their collective scientific knowledge together and put in for a patent in order to own that information, like in order to to kind of put the flag in the ground and say, we came up with this idea, we own it, yet it's the number one website used in the C4 data set to build Google's large language model. So what's going on there? You know, clearly there's been a big shift in how we think about that type of data and who owns it. And I just think that the big tech companies are just trying their luck. They're like, come and stop me.
0: And the fact is they've got bigger lawyers than anyone who's going to challenge them.
1: I mean, you know, and that's exactly right. You know, here in Australia, the only fine that's ever been issued for a a breach of the privacy act is Facebook. And it was for the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which happened in 2011, and they still haven't paid a dollar. It's still tied up in legal fees. You know, so this is how hard it is even when you have a law, even when you find out that they've breached the law. And I mean, I think we can all agree that was probably the most egregious of privacy invasions that we can think of. That scandal it was shocking at the time. But I think that we still haven't seen any remuneration, any payback, any kind of fine paid for that really egregiously bad behaviour. I just think we really either need to, regulators either need to get on top of this and get quite heavy handed. We need to see some of these companies start paying the fines. I mean, Meta in particular has been racking up the fines in Europe. They're getting over the billion dollar mark now. So like, where is the level where eventually the appeals run out, eventually the legal avenues run out and they're actually gonna have to pay the fines? We're yet to see that happen, but it's gotta happen sooner or later, right? At a certain point, we're gonna have to start to see some, some of these companies either start paying the fines and either think that's the cost of doing business and they can get away with this. They're making enough money that they can afford to pay a few hundred million dollars here or there, or yeah, they change their behavior.
0: I hate to say it, but I suspect that the former will happen rather than the latter.
1: Yeah. And I mean, this is why, you know, sometimes I have these conversations and I hate to be the the big stick versus the carrot approach, but tech def- tech industry definitely prefers a you know a soft law kind of incentive based model of regulation, but I think it's just not working like when you're talking about these large companies with huge amount of of power and you know you know Australia has limited capacity, really. We have quite lean, I would say, regulators in that they don't have limitless funds and they don't have limitless capacity to investigate and to take cases to court. So we are already limited by that. But these tech companies know that, you know, and and so they're they're willing to kind of try their luck. And until we can kind of get a big enough stick to make them do the right thing, then they're going to continue to do so.
0: And the problem we have in Australia is we have a relatively small population, so less than 30 million people. If they lost every single person in Australia, it wouldn't be a big deal. It's not like losing every single person in India or China.
1: Yeah, that's right. So, you know, and we've seen them make use of that power. We saw it with the news uh, bargaining media code, where they just switched off all the news sites in Australia on Facebook overnight, it took with them a whole bunch of NGOs, a whole bunch of government sites, a whole bunch of, you know, so a lot of people were affected by that, whether that was deliberate or not. We don't know. There is some suggestion that, that Facebook knew that they were also turning off things that weren't strictly news sites, but it's a flexing of the muscle. We saw a similar thing here when the Guardian released the Uber papers last year. They were able to get a whole bunch of internal communications. It showed that the senior levels of uh, Uber's management knew that their operating model was illegal. When they came to Australia, but it said, "Well, just go. We'll set up. We'll become so popular. Then we'll lobby the government for to change the law to make us legal retrospectively." That's the kind of economic power that we're talking about in a relatively small country like Australia. We're sitting ducks.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a Take, very taken a bit thought. of
1: a depressing turn this conversation. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry about that. <laughs>
0: From the point of view of a data scientist, most data scientists that I've spoken to and worked with are not trying to deliberately set out to break the law. Most of those people, I think all of the ones that I've actually spoken to, are fundamentally good people who do not set out to do the wrong thing and, in fact, are looking for guidance as to what that right thing is to do. If you're one of these data scientists who wants to build a model without doing anything that's morally bankrupt, what should those people be aware of when sourcing data for their work so that they don't harm anyone or get themselves into any trouble?
1: I know that it takes more work, but really, if we look to say, for example, areas where people have been using data for good purposes. Let's look at academic research or let's look at, say, medical research. So academic and medical research have ethics committees for a reason, because they got it really wrong in the beginning. I think anyone who's been to uh, university and done any kind of social science course is aware of the the Milgram experiments and various other uh, (laughs) testing where... The ethics were were way out there, right? But I think the same principles apply, which is that you have to tell people what you're doing, why you're doing it, have a good reason for doing what you're doing and then ask people's permission. It's really that simple. We just go back to basic principles of like, what would I want when someone is using my information? And we're a long way from that now, to be frank. You know, I think there's certain... You know, first party data, first party data, that's certainly the, the topic de jour, but that's by force. That's the removal of the collection of third party data because of pushback from consumers and, and from privacy advocates. But instead of just saying, oh, first party data, well, I got them to tick a box when they first came to the website. Now I can do whatever I want. Actually, think what's about an ethical relationship with the people whose data that I want to use? Um, and particularly if it does relate to individuals. And again, there are public training data sets available, but, you know, one of my other hats that I wear is on the AI Standards Committee and another is on the Diversity Inclusion Think Tank with the National AI Centre. So in both of those roles, I'm thinking also about what is the kind of effect of bad data sets on the type of bias and the type of discrimination and what you're going to get out the other end. So ideally, if we had an ideal world, and I realise this isn't the ideal world, but if we did, we would be thinking about carefully curated data sets where people have consented and are aware of what the data is being used for when when they give that information and not either relying on publicly available training data sets, which we know are biased. We know that there are many issues in terms of inclusion, particularly around race, particularly around gender, you know, and it's Every data scientist knows garbage in, garbage out. You know, if if you do care about ethics, you do care about having an appropriately diverse and representative data set, then you really have to kind of go back to first principles and and collect that from the get-go. And it's laborious and slow, and it maybe means you're not innovating as fast as your peers. And I think where we're at now is that kind of critical moment of the innovation race. My view is that it's incredibly unethical for open AI to release ChatGPT and to leave it out there. I mean, the real difference between ChatGPT and any other large language model we've seen come out as a chatbot is, is just that it's still live. So we've seen the other companies come out. People have said, this is lying. This is not truthful information. This is irresponsible. And people said that and they didn't put it back in the box. You know, I just only months before we saw Facebook and Google come out with large language models and people were like, oh, this is this is not okay. And they've got that brand reputation that they need to manage. OpenAI doesn't have any current products in the marketplace. It doesn't have to worry about that brand reputation. So they've, they've let it loose and, you know, the race is on now. I think any kind of holding back because of ethics is probably gone. And you've seen this in that some of the large companies have sacked entire ethics teams. They've sacked trust and safety teams. They've t- sacked ethics teams. So it's, yeah, it's unfortunately not the, the place that we're moving. So what I want to give a good message to the data scientists working out there is that there are ethical ways to do this, but I also know that that's not the current reality of where, where we're at now. And if you're working for a business that you're not the owner of, you might not be the one getting to make these decisions.
0: And you can end up in a situation which is particularly challenging if you're early in your career, where you're basically told, behave in this way or do this thing, or else look for another job.
1: That's right. And, you know, and there's plenty of people (laughs) lining up behind you to take your job. So it is is certainly challenging. So I certainly don't want, especially those people who are early in their career to feel the, the whole weight of the world on their shoulders, you know. We saw Sam Altman appearing before Congress saying, you know, yeah, we need regulation and this is dangerous. You know, if anyone has the power to stop this, it's him. He's the one with his hand on the on the switch right now, he could turn off Chat GPT tomorrow. But he's not talking about doing that. What he's talking about is other people should clean up his mess, but not not touch his business model, not do his other future people should be regulated to protect from future harms.
0: Yeah. It's like, uh, did you ever read that article? It was in the paper a few years back about how there was some guy who thought that the Mona Lisa should not be on display at the Louvre because it was attracting the wrong type of person, you know, just the hoi polloi and making visiting the Louvre horrible for people who actually wanted to see all the other paintings. So, now that he'd seen it, no one else should be allowed to see no it. No one else so should th- see it. Yeah, it's exactly
1: yeah. <laughs> it's exactly that logic. It's like, well, I've got what I want, so therefore every, everyone else can go hang. But, you know, I mean, it's just incredible posturing, really, from Sam Altman to be there saying that uh, in Congress. If anyone has the power to do anything about this situation right now today, it, it's those companies. It's OpenAI, it's Meta, it's Google, it's Amazon, it's the companies who are currently, and Microsoft, I'm not letting them off the hook funding OpenAI. Um, you know, it's the companies who are developing the tech. If they wanted to stop it, they can.
0: There was an article in the paper, I don't know, about a month ago, about it was a lawyer who used ChatGPT to write his brief. And ChatGPT made up all these fictional cases. And it the lawyer actually asked ChatGPT, how do I know that you're telling the truth? And ChatGPT came up with a fictional explanation to justify that it was right and the guy yeah okay I'll believe this
1: yeah, and, you know, and we're seeing this so much in this in this hype cycle around ChatGPT. It's just like a fundamental misunderstanding about what AI can do and how it works. You know, and I think this is one of the kind of really kind of interesting moments where maybe this will actually lead to a big education piece around what AI is and what it isn't. Um, You know, and when I try and talk to people about like, well, what do you think about ChatGPT? And it's it sounds this and it's uh, that. I'm like, it doesn't make meaning. It's maths, you know. Like it's literally, it's a predictive model. It's predicting the most likely next word in a sentence, and its data set is so huge, and the the, the neural pathways are like so large. The deep learning is so big that it sounds good. It is so good at mimicking, but the words are completely meaningless. They may as well be in another language. It is not producing meaning in any way, shape or form. What it is producing is is language, you know, and there's a big separation between language and meaning. And I think anyone who's a fan of poetry and has had to read the, the tripe that comes out of ChatGPT that they call poetry, understands that there's a massive difference between words on a page and actually creating meaning out of language.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah. Has its uses, but yeah, you don't want to rely on it for your legal briefs or poetry writing.
1: You know, and the things that it's good at are writing in the style of something, or you need to write a a business letter. Business letters are standardised documents. You need to add the meaning in. But you can be like, write me a business letter about X, Y, Z, here's the parameters. And then you go through and you make sure that it makes sense. But, you know, like a business letter, it's a pretty generic type of document, but it's not creating the meaning. You still need to tell it the words that it has to make sense of. So this kind of idea that it's it's using language or writing language, I think is a kind of a fundamental misunderstanding of, it, it is actually still mathematics that underpins a, uh, generative AI, as does all other types of AI.
0: Is there anything on your radar in the AI data and analytics space that you think is going to be important in the next three to five years? Oh,
1: three to five years—what a time frame! I mean, you could have asked this question three to five years ago, and I don't think anyone could have predicted <laughs> where we are right now. You know, I think we're about to see. As I said, we're about to see some interesting thing happen with regulation and with legislation and with some of those big fines that have been given, legal options are going to run out. So we're going to see, I think, a bit of a a comeuppance and a shift, and we'll see if that works or not for some of the big tech companies. So I think that's kind of something that's happening, I guess, in in the kind of the, the market and the political space. But the other thing I think we're about to see is potentially a convergence of many of the emerging technologies in development. So things that we haven't perhaps spoken about today, yet another one of my hats, is on the Brain-Computer Interface Standards Committee. And the work that's happening in what they call neurotechnology is absolutely incredible. Similarly, quantum technology, equally impressive. And even there's some work, I guess, happening in, in, in the fundamentals of how we build the internet around moving back to kind of its original, original framing and away from a platforms model to a kind of on the, on the blockchain or, 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 data, you know, centers that are, that are individually owned versus owned by platforms. So, you know, I think there's like lots of large technological change happening currently in silos, So what I anticipate happening in the next three to five years is that we might see the convergence of some of those things. And I'm yet to kind of reckon with what the consumer challenges might be of some of those things. I think the neurotech example... Presents like a lot of really, really interesting consumer issues. So, is I can kind of use a, a real life example. Recently, there was a trial that was conducted in Australia, actually, with a medical company who was building these brain computer interfaces, and had put one in as a trial in a patient. I believe she had epilepsy, and had been experiencing basically daily seizures. And once she had this implant implanted into her brain she stopped having seizures and her, the quality of life went up just dramatically. I mean, I can't even imagine what it would be like from having daily seizures to suddenly not. And this was because the, the chip acted as a warning system. So it basically identified brain patterns that were, happened before a seizure and she was able to take the right preventative medication and reduce the number of seizures that she was having. Amazing life-changing technology. The company went bust and they removed the chip out of her brain. So she's back to the beginning. So this is life-changing technology, but what happens when the company goes bust? What kind of warranty is there? What kind of consumer protection do you have if you then bought a consumer product-based, you know, brain-computer interface that you had implanted inside your body? What happens when something goes wrong? You know, so this is going to present a whole range of consumer challenges that we haven't even begun to, to, to grapple with. We haven't really got on top of the digital space, let alone to what happens when we move into the neurotech space.
0: Did you ever see the TV show Years and Years?
1: No, I didn't, but I've heard it's very good.
0: It's awesome. It's set in the very near future and they've actually got a subplot in that about one of the characters who gets one of those neurotech implants put into them, except they get a black market one and then it malfunctions. And that's exactly the sort of thing that you're talking about.
1: Yeah. So I suspect, and certainly if Elon Musk has anything to do with it, that we'll see consumer neurotech in the not too distant future within that three to five year timeframe. And that's, you know, a whole new world of consumer problems. We might not just need a consumer data advocate. We might also need a neurotech advocate as well here at Choice.
0: And the fact is the first ones will look remarkable when we see them, but 10 years from now we will realise a complete and utter rubbish.
1: Indeed, indeed, as (laughs) it is with anything. I mean, let's look back at the websites we were looking at in 1996,
0: right? Oh, dear. Let's (laughs) not. (laughs) And what final advice would you give to data scientists looking to create business value from data?
1: Because I used to work as a data analyst and I've met lots of lovely data analysts and data scientists is try and stick to your guns. I know it is uh, tough out there, but I do believe that most people working in the space are good ethical people and want to do the right thing. So don't be afraid of speaking up. I know it's harder when you're earlier career, but if you have any amount of power and influence, try and use it, you know, try and use it to, to speak up. I, I mean, a lot of the time, sometimes there is profit motive that is driving some of these decisions, but also sometimes the people at the top just don't understand. Like they just sometimes don't understand the consequences of their decisions. So I think data scientists, because they understand the storytelling elements of data and they understand the kind of consequences of what it can and can't do, they're in a really unique position to be able to speak to senior leaders and explain to them what's at stake, if they get it wrong, you know, what the, what the risks are and, you know, and suggest better path forward. So I would say, you know, my advice is if you're in that kind of position and you feel like you can speak up, chat to the, the decision makers in the business and chat to the senior leaders and try and, and guide them on the right path. That doesn't mean you can't ever make money. You, you can, but there are good ways to go about it. And then there are, there are other ways.
0: And the fact is consumers want to buy ethical, environmentally friendly, good products with regard to just regular physical products. I can imagine that there will be a market for ethical digital products at some point in the future.
1: Absolutely. You know, I think this is what I was kind of getting to at the beginning is like, let's get back to the basics of making a good product and making a good service that people want to buy. Stop trying to manipulate people into buying your product, just make it good enough, focus your efforts more on less on your marketing and and ad spend, and more on actually building a product that people want to buy, you know, and I think that the more that we can think about that, the sooner we'll get back to that that kind of mission of choices, the fair, safe and just Market where consumers can exercise their choice. Hmm.
0: Yeah, it's a good note to end on.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a great combo.
0: And for any listeners who want to learn more about you or choice or get in contact with you, what can they do?
1: So they can come to the Choice website, which is choice.com.au. And then if you add a slash consumers hyphen and hyphen data, it's not the best URL in the world. But even if you're just putting consumers and data in the Choice website, you'll find all of our stories and investigations. And you'll also find there some of our petitions that we've got open at the moment. So we've got one which is about privacy reform. One of the things that you know that I mentioned uh, that we're pushing for is change the information from about to relates to and how important that is to protect consumers, I can sign a petition for that. Or we've also got one about regulating facial recognition and how we really need to set some kind of clear guardrails around that. And if they want to find out more about me individually, you can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter.
0: And I'll put some links to those things you've just mentioned in the show notes. Great. Thank you. Okay. Anyway, thank you very much for joining me today. This has really been very interesting.
1: Yes, I hope I didn't veer too far off. We covered lots of ground there. We covered um, Sam Altman and uh, appearing in Congress and personalised pricing and dating apps. So, yeah, it was a a good conversation. Thank you for having me.
0: And for those in the audience, thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and this has been Value Driven Data Science brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting.